episode of the Legacy Podcast, helping you build your legacy. This episode is number 255, and it is an exposition of 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 17 that I recently gave to the church in which I pastor, Mount Taylor Baptist Church. Unfortunately, though, uh, it was cut short somewhere in the recording. I think I lost my battery on my uh, mobile recorder, and so I was not able to uh, get all of it. So you'll find that it is... Uh, uh, Utterly short of what it should be, but nonetheless, hope you enjoy the whatever it is that you are able to hear from this. Um, and thanks for it. I have for some time now, as you probably know, I uh, work regularly in my window cleaning business, and one of the things about that is I get to listen to a lot of various things as I'm working. And one of one of those I like to listen to, I listen to podcasts a lot, and there's a a pod, which is basically like an online radio show or whatever you can download. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. But uh, one of the ones that I listen to is about preparedness. And it deals with, um, you know, preparing for catastrophe and preparing for, uh, for different things that might come our way and that kind of thing. And I guess it reminds me back of my Weeblo days and Boy Scout days back when we would, you know, try to be prepared for everything. And, and uh, you know, I kind of like that. But it's uh, a lot of those that you listen to, they're... They're designed around the end of the world and, you know, uh, cataclysmic events and all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, they're not very realistic. But I like this one because it's very realistic and it's kind of here and now. And, and one, of the, uh, one of the concepts that he continually brings out is that uh, in order for us to truly be secure, for us to truly be safe, is that we need to be careful about where we go. In fact, he says this. He says, um, if you want to truly be safe... If you want to avoid danger, don't go to stupid places with stupid people and do stupid things. Now, is that not just, you know, pretty basic and um, down to, you know, the real knit and grit of what we're supposed to do? And, you know, the thing is that, you know, we can kind of laugh at that. And it's, you know, it's pretty sound advice. But that's really, I think, what John is getting to here in this portion of Scripture. And that is that if we are going to overcome the world, if we're going to overcome the wicked one, then uh, we need to make sure that we do that in a very specific way. And so that's what he talks about here in this portion of Scripture. If you remember, uh, we are uh, looking at the conditions for fellowship with God. At the end of chapter 5, John in this letter talks about how he's writing this so that we may know that we have eternal life and that in knowing we may have eternal life, we can have that security. And the idea is that we are to have confidence that we are indeed secure in our faith. Well, how do we have that confidence? He gives us certain tests throughout this epistle. 
And we've looked at a couple of those in terms of loving our neighbors and things like that, if you remember from last week. And uh, some actually look at verse 12 through 17 as kind of a digression. Um, But I don't see that. I see that as continuing his idea of what is required for us in order to feel secure in our relationship with God. And um, we're going to look at uh, the two principles that he outlines here. And the first one is this. Those who are in fellowship with God overcome the wicked one. Those who are in fellowship with God overcome the wicked one. This then deals with how to overcome the wicked one or the person of evil. And in verses 12 through 14, I don't know uh, what translation you are using. I'm using the New King James. And you can see uh, if you're using one of these type of translations that they, they separate out more as like a hymn rather than as a narrative. And so you'll see a different kind of print, more of like a poetic type of print rather than a regular. And so one of the questions is, is whether this is like a, a New Testament hymn that was sung or some kind of uh, phraseology or catechism or something like that. We're not exactly sure, but it's certainly in poetic form and, and it repeats itself. You can see that in verses 13 to 14 that the exact same things are said, except for there's a little bit added in verse 14. And Uh, We will explain uh, to some extent what that means. And so in verse uh, 1, it says, I write to you little children. Now, the little children here that is spoken about in verse 12 is different than the little children in verse verse 13. They're different words that are used. The one that is used here in verse 12 is the same one that is referred to uh, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, where it says, my little children. And the idea is that he is speaking now as kind of a father in the faith. And he is speaking to his flock, if you will. He's speaking to his his children in the faith. And so he's addressing all of them in their entirety. Now, some actually break out this idea of father and son and young people, as it talks about in the different age categories here, as specific age categories he's talking about. I don't think that. I think he's he's speaking here from a spiritual standpoint. And he's, he's referring to all of them when he talks about them as little children, but then he's identifying different aspects of that congregation uh, from the standpoint of spiritual maturity. And uh, so that will make more sense here as uh, we go through. But in verse 12, it says that they are identified as children because they have been welcomed into the family of God through forgiveness of sins. It says their sins are forgiven in verse 12. That is a prerequisite. I can't say that word very well prerequisite uh, to being saved. It is the first necessary step for all those, uh, no matter what maturity they may be in. And uh, notice, too, the last part of verse 12. It says, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. All of this is for the glory of the Lord. Before anyone is able to overcome the wicked one, he must be in a right relationship with. With God, He must be a part of the family of God. He must be children of God. And so we uh, see them being identified here in that way. And then in verse 13, he then breaks down this into various aspects of life. And he refers to fathers, young men, and little children again. And he repeats this in verses 13 and 14. And uh, I, I was listening to one message this week about that. And, of course, they brought up the phrase before that I have said that the reason why it's repeated is because he's writing to men. And men need to be told things twice. Men need to be told things twice. And uh, so uh, that may be the case. I think more just poetic. And um, they, in Hebrew, they would often write in what's called the chiastic form. 
um, where like in poetry, we sometimes repeat a line. They would do the same thing. They would kind of repeat a line kind of for emphasis and they would add a little bit more. And uh, that may be more likely what is going on here. Although it is true that very often we need to be told things a couple of times. In verse 13, it says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Fathers are uh, here characterized as those who are mature in the faith, those who have been around for a while. And it says that they have known him from the beginning. In other words, they have a long history of a relationship with Christ, a long history in their relationship with God. These are those maybe who had come to faith early on in their life. And Paul now or uh, John now is writing later uh, in their maturity level. And they are called fathers because of the maturity that they have been able to exhibit. And, of course, being mature in the faith is uh, certainly a characteristic that is required in order to overcome the wicked one. And then he talks about young men. He says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And the young men here carries the idea of those who are, who are uh, strong in the faith. And just as uh, you know, we get older, we sometimes, uh, our, our health, to say it mildly, our health begins to deteriorate. But our mind should be stronger. <laughs> and uh, so... You know, they, they talk about uh, brains over brawn. And, you know, um, as we get older, we begin to rely more and more on our brains and less on our brawn. And we turn over some of the, the brawny aspects of life to the young men coming up. And that's the idea that is being carried out here, although on a spiritual sense. And it says here they have overcome the wicked one. That is, they have, they have fought the battle and they have been victorious. And he says, I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. Again, the first step in coming to faith is understanding the Father. And then in verse 14, again, he repeats these same things, except that he, um, he adds to this idea of young men uh, in the second part. He says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and because the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, the idea here is that uh, they are able to overcome the wicked one because they are strong in the word of God. It is the word of God that enables them to actually gain victory over the wicked one. And that's what gives them the strength. It's not necessarily their physical strength. And that's why I think he's talking about spiritual aspects here. They are strong in the faith. And so they're able to overcome the wicked one. What John is getting at in this poetry is the readers of this letter were equipped to overcome the, the evil one because of their relationship with Christ. They knew him. They were forgiven by him. They were made strong by his word. And so they have overcome. Jesus tells us in the disciples prayer or the Lord's prayer, as we sometimes call it, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Now, how are we to overcome the wicked one then? How are we to be delivered from the wicked one? Well, I think that there are four things that we should apply as it relates to this. Number one is recognize that it is not us who does it, but Christ. If you think that your battle, that the battle against the wicked one is something that you can have victory over in yourself, that something that you can um, fight without the strength of the Lord, uh, you are arrogant and misled. Certainly can't. Remember the situation with Joshua? Joshua was going to battle in the promised land, and he was called to get his army together, and he got 30,000 men together. And then remember what God said? He said, no, it's too many. Cut it down. Everybody that's scared, go home. And so everybody that's scared went home and left him with 10,000, I think it was. And God says, no, no, it's still too many. Now, he was going out against the army that was outnumbering him significantly already. And now he's down to 10,000 men, and he says, no, 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 it's still too many. Go down to the lake. And those who lap up the water versus those who 
who uh, dipped the water, that kind of thing, uh, let them go. And so he remains with 300 men. Now, why did God cut down his army so vastly? So that it might be evident that it was not him who was fighting the battle, but it was God who fights the battle. And so our first step in understanding uh, how we are to overcome the wicked one is to know that the battle is not ours to fight, but it's Christ's to fight. Secondly, being the family of God, it's impossible uh, to fight and to win in the battle if we are not in the family of God. Only those who are in the family of God are spared in the end. Only these are able to experience victory over the wicked one. You're either on the winning side or you're on the losing side. There is no tie game. And in order to be on the winning side, you must be in the family of God. Be in the family of God in order to be on the winning team. Number three, grow up in maturity in the knowledge of God. The more mature we are in our faith, the more secure we are, and the less the wicked one is able to shake our foundations. Like a toddler starting to walk, so is one who is immature in his knowledge of God. You've seen a little toddler walk, right? Uh, they step up next to something. They try to walk alongside the, the couch or the sofa or whatever, you know, and their legs are going like this. They're barely, and then they fall right down, right? That, that's how it is for someone who's immature in the faith. But then when you look at a professional athlete, and how agile they are and how they're able to, to do things that you wonder how they're able to do it in such physical strength and such majesty. Well, that's, that's the way it is. Someone who has developed themselves in the faith. And so we are to grow up in the knowledge of God. And then fourthly, we're to be strong in the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you're not regularly memorizing the word of God and studying, how can you expect to be strong in the word of God and overcome the wicked one and the temptations that he brings. And so we are told here that we are to overcome the wicked one. But secondly, in verses 15 through 17, we are told that those who are in fellowship with God do not love the world. They do not love the world. Now, this section deals with how to overcome the wicked world or the place of wickedness. And in verse 15, it says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Now, what are we to conclude about this? Now, I love my wife. She's in the world. I love my children. They're in the world. So is this an absolute statement saying that we can't love the things of the world? And if so, then that means we're supposed to hate my wife and hate my children. (laughs) I don't think so. So what's he getting at here? He's getting at that we are not to love the system of the world that leads us astray from God and that our love for the things of this world cannot even begin to compare to our love for God. And in fact, in the loving of the things of this world, unless we are loving God in the midst of loving those things, why do I love my life? I love my wife because I can see in our marriage relationship the reflection of God in that. That's why we are to do that. And if we lead our light astray in some way in that way, then it actually uh, enables us. To love the world instead of God. And then in verse 16, what he does, and I'll come back to the last part of verse 15. What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy?
like a plant one day will wither away and to this world we'll have to say goodbye but just like the plant that withers away we will leave many seeds behind if today you lost your life what would you leave behind what would the ones around you see what happened in the dash between your birth and death what will you do to change your legacy if today you lost your life what would you leave behind what would the ones around you see what happened in the dash between your birth and death what will you do to change your legacy what will you do to change your legacy